I've titled uh, Under 35. We're looking at people in the Word of God who were zealous for the Lord. They served the Lord greatly uh, while they were yet under the age of 35. Some went on to serve the Lord for many years after that. We won't be looking at that time of their life uh, very much. And then there were some, unfortunately, that served the Lord greatly in their younger years, and then they faltered in their older years. And what I'll do is I'll just summarize the rest of their life. But this morning we're looking at Jonathan. He was a young man. I've titled this lesson, A Humble Prince. First uh, Samuel chapter 14, and let's begin reading in, in verse 1. Now it came to pass upon a day that Jonathan the son of Saul said unto the young man that bare his armor, Come and let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he told not his father. And Saul tarried in the uttermost part of, Gibe of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people that were with him were about 600 men. And Ahiah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people knew not that Jonathan was gone. And between the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over unto the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on the one side, and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the one of the other, Sina. The forefront of the one was situate uh, northward over against Michmash, and the other southward over against Gibeah. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, and let us go over unto the garrison of these, garrison of these uncircumcised. Now I want you to notice especially this, notice there's a colon there, this next phrase, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. And his armor bearers said unto him, do all that is in thine heart. Turn thee, behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. And then said Jonathan, behold, we will pass over unto these men and we will discover ourselves unto them. If they say thus unto us, tarry until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and will not go unto them. But if they say thus, come up unto us, then we will go up. For the Lord hath delivered them into our hand, and this shall be a sign unto us. And both of them discovered themselves unto the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, behold, the Hebrews come forth out of the holes that they have hid themselves. And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said unto his armor bearer, Come up after me. And then notice this phrase, For the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet, and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer slew after him. And that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about twenty men within, as it were, a half acre of land which a yoke of oxen might plow. And there was a trembling in the host, in the field, among all the people. The garrison and the spoilers, they also trembled, and the earth quaked. So it was a very great trembling. And the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went on beating down uh, one another. It's quite an amazing uh, story. And uh, as I think about... The small, it describes the two rocks and the situation. It's a very, very steep hill. Uh, and uh, it says it was a half acre of land. And I kind of picture like the lot next to where our house is. That's a half acre going up a steep hill. Only this would have been much steeper. 
But imagine this war, this fight, if you will, happening on this little narrow strip of land on a very steep hillside. And these two young men, young men, uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer, are able to defeat uh, 20 of the Philistines who were soldiers. We'll get look into looking into a little bit more how they were not only outnumbered, but they were the weapons that the, the other army had and everything uh, was much greater than theirs. The context of this passage, um, if we look at that just briefly, Saul, uh, was, as Israel's first king, had only been reigning for two years. Uh, they had been, Israel had been living under the heavy hand of the Philistines. Turn back to uh, 1 Samuel 13, and we'll just look at the, the previous chapter. We'll look at a couple things here so we can understand what the situation was like. So 1 Samuel 13, we'll read 19 through 22. <clears throat> it says, uh, Now there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share, and his coulter, and his axe, and his mattock. So in order to just even sharpen the instruments that they used for plowing, for for farming and just practical things of life, they had to go to the Philistines to sharpen their tools. Yet they had a file for the mattocks and for the coulters and for the forks and for the axes and to sharpen the goads. So it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan. But with Saul and Jonathan, his son, they were found. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the passage of Michmash. And so we see here that um, Israel was in a desperate strait. Um, it reminds me as I read this how the way that they were so, um, their, their weapons were so inadequate for the battle. I was reading a story yesterday um, on the news about uh, some Mexican farmers in, uh, down in Mexico that just recently rose up against the cartel and they killed the cartel they had a horrible year uh, farming the crops didn't do very well uh, in 2023 and and so the cartel was coming after them to collect more money and just keep oppressing them even more and the the farmer said well we'll meet you tomorrow and we'll meet you at the football field and a bunch of the farmers came and met a lot of the cartel on a football field soccer field and uh, um, and they killed uh, ten of the cartel with sickles and shotguns. <laughs> well, the cartel is heavily armed, and uh, four of the farmers were killed. Of course, the cartel then came back and retaliated and killed a bunch of the farmers. But it just as I was reading and studying for this lesson, I was like, well, I just read about a bunch of farmers going to battle with sickles and so forth. And this is the situation. That it's a similar kind of thing where the Philistines have just been oppressing Israel and to prevent an uprising, they didn't allow them to have swords or anything. Um, Jonathan's previous experience from the few days or weeks before what happened in our passage today, let's just take a look at that. Jonathan was very young. He did not have a lot of experience, but he did have a little bit of experience. Let's read chapter 13, verse 1 through 7. 
It says, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in Mount Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. And then notice this in verse 3, And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. So in this instance, Jonathan had a thousand men with him. So um, he smote a garrison, and, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten a garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel was also had an abomination with the Philistines. And the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots. Look at that. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and pitched in Michmash eastward from Beth Haven. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were distressed. I find that little parentheses kind of comical in a way. <laughs> the people were distressed. Then the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in the pits. And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and all the people followed him. Notice this, they followed him trembling. So this now sets the, we see the context of our passage here where Jonathan uh, is a man, a young man of great courage. He was not like the rest of Israel, hiding himself in thickets and in caves and trembling and following after Saul. He believed in the God of Israel, and he was a courageous man. The age of Jonathan, before we get too far into the lesson, um, he was 18 to 22 most likely in this passage. Jonathan, we know that Jonathan and David were uh, great friends. Jonathan would have been uh, older than David somewhat, as we see him here fighting battles while at this very time David is still uh, younger, uh, probably a young teenager, tending his father's sheep. Most likely, Jonathan was five to ten years older than David, but young enough to still be considered to be of the same generation as David. So now I want to consider the faith of Jonathan. It said here in our passage in, in, uh, verse, in verse 6, Jonathan said, It may be that the Lord will work for us. You know, sometimes in life there's, there's only one way that things can be done. It's the only way that we should really look at, look at things. Um, and that is that the Lord will work for us. And then this, this phrase, which I love. For there is no restraint to the Lord. Just that we're going to look at just yeah. that, that phrase. There is no restraint to the Lord. And then, to save by many or by few. When the victory is the Lord's, he can use whatever means he chooses. Right. It's, it's his battle. Right. It's his work. In the work that we do, it's not our work. We're just servants. It's, it's the Lord's work. We, we talk that way all the time, don't we? Don't we talk about it's the Lord's church ministry, it's the Lord's work, the gospel ministry, it's, it's of the Lord. And then how many times are we uh, in despair and we're struggling and we're frustrated in the Lord's work. We get frustrated in the Lord's work. But it's the Lord's work. Sometimes we need to take a back seat and realize Amen. it's the Lord's work. Yeah. 
What I should probably do is just make sure that I'm submitted to the Lord in the Lord's work. And that's what John, how Jonathan is here. He's a man of great courage. It is going to be required that Jonathan take action and we must go out and work. We have to labor. We have to work. But it's the Lord's work. Yes. <clears throat> and the first thing that is necessary in doing the Lord's work is being humble and having our hearts right. And understanding it's the Lord's work, it's not my work. And then we're better able to go about and go into the battle. And so when the victory is the Lord's, one of the first things that we have to recognize is he can use whatever means he chooses. And by whatever links and scope and scale that he uses, he can do great works with many. And he has. And he can do great works on the same scale with few. It's all about how the Lord chooses to do things at a particular time, in a particular generation. We see all these things down through history, church history and uh, the history of the Word of God. Oh, often the Lord uses few, and I, I almost think the Lord prefers to use few, because man is so sorry that even though it's many of God's people that he uses, man will begin to look at himself. Amen. That's really the problem that we have as the right. people of God is it doesn't take very much success right. at all for us to start seeing that, man, you know, we, we really have a great ministry in this church. We have, I mean, right. if it wasn't for that program that we, right. would have start, that we would have started, I mean, that's why this church really succeeded. And it's just funny how we are as human beings when we're starting out and maybe we're trying to grow a church and boy, we're relying on the Lord. And then we get on the other side of the victory and we look back and we're like, man, it was so wonderful, all the things that we did. Yeah. We have to really stay in focus and realize when we're going into it, we need the Lord. And when we get on the other side of the victory, we realize, thank the Lord he used, you know, yes. what means he did. And so we have to, we have to stay humble. Uh, Saul, or what is impressive to me is that Jonathan, as a young man, He's 18 to 22 years old, has this kind of confidence in God. Amen. You don't have to, and this is going to be repeated over and over throughout the lessons, you don't have to have a lifetime of success as a Christian and, and seeing all that God's done for you to have faith in God and do great things for God. And we're going to look at why that is. Oh, and so often the Lord uses the few, and it's because He wants the glory. Um. He wants us to praise Him. He wants us to give Him the glory. He's a jealous God. And so, um, are we willing, the next thing I want us to consider, are we willing to be the few who step out in faith? Or do we want to be one of the many? I was talking with, uh, I know he won't mind me sharing this, but I was talking with uh, um, Taylor a few months ago, and he was trying to decide which church he should go to down there in Colorado, and and he was going to, there were some things that weren't that doctrinally sound in this one church. He was going, there was a lot of good things about the church, but there were some things about the church that from a doctrinal standpoint weren't that great. And he had a choice between this church that has the youth programs and they got a lot of things going on. It's a good sized church. They got a lot of things going on for people in their generation, right? Um, and he's in his early 20s. You all know him. And he, he's got a young wife. And oh, by the way, I'll just throw this out there. Um, he just told me yesterday he, he's 
basically he told me that I'm going to be a grandpa. <laughs> but they just found out. He's like, man, I want to tell you in person. He was going to buy me a hat that said something about being a grandpa. But anyway, um, so just, but the, he said to share it with you, so I'm just going to put that out there. Okay. But um, I t we were talking about this church or it's a lot further. You got to drive 35 miles one way to go to this other church, but it's a doctrinally sound church. Um, and, uh, um, but it's small. It's small. And I said, do you want to focus on, do you want to be a, a receiver or a, a giver? Do you want to be a doer or one that sits back and is blessed? And, oh, and he had never really thought about it that way. And a lot of young people, a lot of young families, they always want to pick a church that they can go to where it's got something for their kids. They want to go to a church that has something for people of their generation. Well, do you want to be a difference maker? Why don't you be the young people? And as I talked to him about that, he realized, yeah, if we stay in this church, more than likely we're just going to be part of the crowd. Mm -hmm. It's a blessing. to No church is ever big enough. I mean, the church in Jerusalem ended up being 10,000 people. Church in Ephesus was a massive church. Um, there's no such thing as a church that's too big. But um, if your reason for being in a church or with a certain Christian group or a certain ministry is because of the size and you're, and you're going along with the flow, or do you want to be part of the few? Are we willing, and more and more Christians, I mean, need to really consider, are we willing to even be the few that are willing to step out in faith, understanding that God can use the few. How many young people do we have in this church? Not very many, right? But God can use the few to reach the many young people. The only way that this church is going to have more young people is if the young people who are here are willing to be part of the few. And so Jonathan, he was one of the few. He was definitely one of the few, and so was his armor bearer. Um, the, the Lord spoke about the work of the ministry and, and the gospel ministry, and he said, the harvest is plenteous. There's a lot of people that are going to be saved. There's a lot of uh, a work that goes into when people are saved. There's a lot of work that goes into discipling and teaching and, and so forth. Uh, the harvest is plenteous. Uh, but the laborers are few. He didn't say the laborers are many and we need to pray for more of a harvest. It's, no, the harvest is plenteous. We need more laborers. The laborers are what are few. Um, God does not need a certain ratio of preachers or soul winners to reach many. Um, any lifetime, God does not need one child of God to reach one lost soul. Or does it, does God need that one for one or should we desire that one reaches 10 or run reaches 20 and what's sobering though is if you stop and think about it's it's challenging for me how many people have I led to the Lord in my life when I die is it only going to be a ratio of one to one or is it going to be a zero to one how many people have I actually sat down with and led them to the Lord or as a result of my testimony, at least, I saw a year or two later they were baptized and became a part of the church. And I was the first one that presented the gospel to them. Mm. Like, which, what's the ratio there? But God can use the, me, the few to reach the many. Or can God do such great works compared to the one-to-one -one ratio? Consider this. 
What was the ratio on the day of Pentecost? It's 120 meeting in the upper room, and one day there was 3,000 people saved. Because it's the power not of you, but it's the power of the gospel. And one gospel, one man can speak the word of God, speak the gospel, and many people. It's the power of the gospel. It's God. It's the Holy yes. Spirit quickening yes. hearts. And so, But God has chosen by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. So the one, the few, the one speaking can have a great impact and many souls can be saved. God has chosen to use the few. And so um, Paul, consider him on Mars. Oh, we always go to the day of Pentecost. Well, what about a few weeks later when 5,000 were saved? And there was only two, there was 120 people involved that day. There was only two, the man who was healed at the temple and Peter, and I always forget who the other guy was. 5,000 people were saved that day. Okay, but, okay, well, forget about that. That, that doesn't happen nowadays. Okay. Well, what about Paul on Mars Hill? In Athens? It's like, oh, Paul, man, he, he bombed that day. No, he didn't. How many people were saved that day? It says, so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so -and -so cleaved unto him, and several also, several others also. Man, I wish, I wish that just one time I would have preached, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so would have got saved, and several others also. But my point is, it was one man preaching to a bunch of godless heathen, and in one day, Many were saved by the few. Yeah. Preaching the word. It's the power of the gospel. Yes. And so the key in this passage, looking at Jonathan, is that he was willing to be the means. He knew about the means. God can save by many or by few. It's okay for, we can know that up here. God, God, God doesn't need me. Too many times that's how we look at, God doesn't need me. God can do it without me. No. We need to be willing to be that one that, excuse me, we need to be willing to be that one that God uses. And uh, too many times we, we look at, oh yeah, God can do whatever God's going to do. And no, we need to be the one. And so he was willing to be that means that God would choose. And by the way, this was a, this was a high stakes situation. This was actually life and death. Okay, this wasn't just simple going out and witnessing. No, oh, this was life and death, okay? And he had faith to be willing to be that one. And so he said, the Lord can save by many or by few. And then he says this, there is no restraint to the Lord. It means that God is sovereign. And by sovereign, what I mean in this passage, in this context, it's not talking so much, he's not referring so much to his power and his might, but he can do whatever he wants, yeah. It's talking about there's no restraint to the Lord to save by many or few. It's the means. God can use whatever means yeah. he wants. And right now we're few. So what Jonathan said, he can save by an army. Last time we defeated a garrison, I had a thousand guys. This time there's only two of us and we're going to defeat the same size army. It was the same size. And uh, you can do it by many, a thousand or he could do it by two. And he just believed. There's no restraint to the Lord. He can do it this time too. We really need to notice that it was not blind faith. 
you know, there's a lot of people in military and from other cultures and other traditions, um, religious-wise, and they go into war praying to their gods and believe in different things. I mean, the Vikings had their Valhalla and how they're going to be rewarded. The Muslims believe they're going to have this and that and everything when they get to heaven if they blow themselves up. I mean, that's not how Jonathan was. This, this wasn't blind faith. It wasn't just something in his mind. Uh, Jonathan was young, and he couldn't draw upon his personal experience as older men, such as Samuel might have. He, he could not point to all the past victories. He only had one, and in that one, he had many. <clears throat> now he's going after another garrison with only one other person. But what he did have was the Word of God. Now, the Word of God wasn't the Word of God in scope as it is now. It was much smaller. You know, it was, it was like this percentage of my Bible, right? That's all he had. But he did have the Word of God. And um, he also had the word of the prophets. He had the words of Samuel. He had um, uh, a lot of uh, the, the Israelites had been told to tell your children about these stories. Tell your people what God has done. And so there was a lot of oral history. And so he had the history. In Israel's short history, there were stories not that long before um, a couple, three hundred, couple hundred years before, um, there was the stories of Gideon, another young man. God used a few in that situation, didn't he? He knew about Gideon. He knew about Joshua and the walls in the in the walls of Jericho. Um, he knew about them going over the Jordan. He knew all about. This is pretty recent history. He knew all about Samson. That was a few, wasn't it? How many? <laughs> How many individual feats similar to what Jonathan's going to do in this passage did, did Sam, Samson have? And Jonathan knew that he wasn't, you know, the, the man that the way uh, the Spirit of God would come upon uh, Samson, uh, Samson, but it was the same God, wasn't it? It's, yeah. the same, it's the same God. And Jonathan would have known that the only reason Samson did all those things is because the Spirit of God would come upon him. So God can save by, by few. He had... He knew, he knew his God. So our personal experience, the takeaway here is our personal experience, experience is not to be our main source of faith. It can really, going back and looking at what God's done can really help us out. We're to go back and give God the credit and really look at what God has done in our life and in the lives of others that we know. But that is not the main source of faith. The word of God. And the promises of God in the Word of God are our source of faith. The principles that we operate by, the decisions that we make, um, our core beliefs, they are not to be based on our experience and what works for us. That's what the world does. This is, well, this is what works for me. No, that's not what we're supposed to do in our Christian walk. But... Our principles are supposed to be based on the Word of God. I want to look at just a couple pass or passage in the New Testament. Turn to First Timothy chapter four. Here's another young man. Young people really need to, uh, if they could un really embrace these concepts early and become strong in the faith. Their faith being based on the Word of God. It's key to your it's key to success in your life as a Christian. 
But in 1 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 10, Paul was writing to a young man. Paul had been his mentor. Paul considered Timothy to be uh, his son. And uh, uh, by this time, Timothy's pastoring a huge church in Ephesus. And, uh, but he's still a young man. And in 1 Timothy 4.10, it says, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. These things command and teach. Notice this, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example as a young man. Be an example of the believers in word, in conversation, your way of life, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And then notice these, these verses. Till I come, young Timothy, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. And then go down to 16. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Just real quickly, um, this give attendance in verse 3. He says, uh, or in verse 13, uh, he says, uh, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. This give attendance means pay attention or apply oneself. Apply yourself to reading. Have regard for doctrine. Have regard for the Word of God. As a young man, apply yourself to reading and study. Teach and preach, and then teach and preach what you read from the Word of God as you learn it. And pay attention to doctrine, and give attendance to doctrine. As a young preacher, Paul was not telling him to read, when he said, give attendance to reading, he was not saying, uh, read self-help books by leading Christian psychologists. What would... What would Timothy have been reading? It wasn't a purpose-driven life. It wasn't some book by Joel Olstein, The Power of I Am. You know, that blasphemy. It wasn't that kind of stuff, how to be a successful minister and how to lead people. And it wasn't classes on how to be a better speaker and all of this. But when he says, read, give attendance to reading, it's reading the Word of God. After all, that's what you're going to be preaching from. You're going to be exhorting. You're going to be preaching from the Word of God. The teachings and the doctrines that you embrace are from the Word of God. The more you know the Word of God and the more you read the Word of God, if there's another doctrine comes along, another gospel comes along, you're going to easily be able to to identify it because you're going to be like, that's not what the Word of God says. It doesn't matter what... Matthew Henry or John Gill or some other commentator um, or other writers, Tozier or Pickier, whoever. It doesn't matter so much, Jared Graves. It doesn't matter what they said. doesn't matter as much. It just really doesn't matter that much. It can be a help. But what matters is the Word of God. How much do you know the Word of God and what this passage over here backs up this passage and this supports this? And so if somebody, because all these Christian writers use the Word of God, right? They'll sprinkle some Word of God in there somewhere. But the more you know the Word of God, you'll be like, he totally took that out of context. 
I know the context that that verse is coming from, and that is not what that's talking about. You see, but people who don't spend a lot of time in the Word of God, they read these Christian books, and they take one little verse here, and then they expound on it for a whole chapter, and come to find out, that verse isn't even talking about that at all, because it's all about the context. And so he's telling Timothy, read the Word of God. Do you spend, how much time proportionally, if you read it all, um, how much time do you spend reading the Word of God, or do you read spend reading Christian books. If you spend more time reading Christian books, it's disproportionate. It's just out of whack. Amen. It really is. If when you, this is the best advice, my dad was my pastor and the best advice he gave me is like the first place you go when you go to a passage and you're studying, the first thing you do is don't go look, like if you're on Esau or something, go, don't go to the commentaries and see what they have to say and then figure out what you think it says. No. We're talking, this is a spiritual book, and we're talking about, I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This book is alive, Amen. and you read it, you study it, and, and you see what, it, what you believe it says, and then you can kind of check out a couple commentaries and see if you're off base. Or, but if you've already come to, yeah, this is, this is kind of what I think it is, then you know, go with that. But as a young man, spend time reading. As a young man or woman, you will at some point, I also want to touch on this doctrine thing real quick. It's, as a young man or woman, you will at some point come into contact with religious church people. That's just all I'm going to call them, right? Religious church people who will embrace the fact and in fact brag about their church in this way. I've heard it up here in the Northwest. I heard it in Colorado. I've heard it just about everywhere I've ever been. Is uh, We don't worry about doctrine or we don't concern ourselves with doctrine here. Um, that is... Completely contrary to the Word of God. Yes, yes. It just is. I mean, two times. He's writing to a young man. And two times, within three verses, he says, give attendance to doctrine. Doctrine's important. Well, what is doctrine? See, <clears throat> people make those statements a lot of times. I think it's just naive and it's fairly ignorant because they don't understand what doctrine is. I mean, well, do you guys teach anything at your church? Well, yeah. Do you have a statement of faith? Yeah. Then how can you say you don't? You have some kind of doctrine, because doctrine is teaching. It's it's uh, <clears throat> it's thoughts and ideas based on the word. Of, it's supposed to be based on the word of God, <laughs> and this is what we teach. This is what we believe about this. And so, if you are a religious organization, you don't believe in doctrine or anything. I mean, you're just a puddle of jelly from a spiritual standpoint. You, there's nothing. You have no leg to stand on. And unfortunately, there are. There are a lot of churches that don't have doctrine. And I won't go any further than that just because we're really wanting to focus on um, Jonathan and, and young people. But listen, young people, stay away from churches and religious organizations. And if you hear, well, we just don't believe, we just don't really emphasize doctrine here. We're more just about loving each other and loving Jesus. Man, walk away. Amen. Just walk away. It's yes. contrary to the Word of God. Try to help those people, but don't go that way. If Jonathan had not had some instruction or teaching about God, if he had not heard of the mighty works of God in the past, then what basis would he have had for making a statement like, there is no restraint to the Lord? Mm. It was based on something. It wasn't blind faith. That was my main point. We don't... We. Don't we live out our lives sometimes as though there is restraint to the Lord? 
don't we? Uh -huh. That's the way we live. Uh -huh. But so my question to you is, how open-ended is your faith? How open-ended is your faith? Toward God. What do you believe God can do? Is there a restraint? Do you have a ceiling? Well, he couldn't do that. Um, how open-ended is your faith? Um, and then, finally, I'll close with this just real quick. Because there's another... We'll look at Jonathan again next week. Um, but I want to finish with this thought in this passage. He sought a sign. He did not blindly charge up the hill, but he desired a sign. He desired to defeat the Philistines. He believed God could... And, um, do it. There's no restraint with God. He could save by few. But just because the Lord is not, was not limited to use few or many did not mean that this was for sure Jonathan's battle. He sought a confirmation. He said, if you go back to this passage in verse 12, if they say thus, come up to us, then we will go. For the Lord hath delivered them into our hand, and this shall be a sign unto us. It says in verse 12, And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said unto his armor-bearer, Come up after me. Notice this, For the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet and his armor-bearer after him. And we go on and we read about how they had the victory. Notice this, how that before they entered into the fight, he had said, This will be a sign. And then before they entered into the fight, Jonathan said, the Lord hath. It's like past tense. Oh, yes. He didn't say the Lord will. Come on, let's go for the Lord will. It was a done deal in his mind. Yes. It's like he believed God could. He believed God would. And so he just did. And it was a done deal. God hath delivered them. into. That's how strong his faith was. Amen. And so... Um, if the Lord is in the fight, the victory is not ours. It says the Lord hath delivered them into, not he didn't even say our hand. He said into the hand of Israel. He wasn't doing this for his own glory. He wasn't doing this oh, so he could go be celebrated and maybe his dad would be happy with him. Uh, no, he was fighting for Israel. And we're going to see next week as we consider, one of the questions I want you to think about next week, going into next week is, why did David and Jonathan love each other so much? As soon as Jonathan met David, he loved him. And it continued and it never stopped. And even though most of their adult life they actually didn't spend together, their love for each other was so great. I want you to think about coming in the next week, why? Why did they love each other so much? Um, was it their personalities just were the same? Or, you know, think about it. And then finally, if the Lord is in the fight, the victory uh, is ours. If we step out believing it is the Lord's will that we do such and such, then we need to step out in a certain way. A lot of times we can believe, ah, I believe it's the Lord's will. I know because I've been there. I believe it's the Lord's will. Then we step out scared. Right? Well, I believe it's the Lord's will that I go to Idaho. I, you know, I believe it's the Lord's will that I leave my business and we go do this and and I don't know how it's going to work and I believe it's the Lord's will but I'm do it anyway. I'll be honest with you, I'm scared to death. And that's wrong. Because there is a certain aspect where if it's the Lord's will, it's the Lord's will. We're just supposed to do it. 